the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Steinbuck filling in for Dave. Uh, Dave is recovering from a successful procedure on his foot. We wish him only the best, of course. And the good news is it all went well. He's doing well. And he will be back on the show next week. And you won't have to suffer under listening to my voice drone on excessively. In the meantime, today... We're on. We have already with us Chris Corbett. Of course, Heidi, the producer, is on the line with us, and Heidi will be interacting with us and, most importantly, telling us when to take breaks because, needless to say, I'm going to miss it without our help. So we're going to hear from Heidi, uh, and we're going to talk with Chris, and then a little bit later on, not too much later, in fact, Hannah Webb Howard is going to call in uh, for those of you who are regulars to the show, you'll remember Hannah. She's a law student. Uh, I had known her prior to that because she was a guest, a regular guest of Dave's as part of one of his power panels. She's young and has a connection to the millennials that I don't have and gives and offers perspectives from that uh, um, demographic. Uh, And most importantly, for the listeners of Dave's show, she is a true conservative. Indeed, she is the founding president, as I am the founding advisor, of the Bowen Law School's Second Amendment Society, or I think it's, I think the wording's a little different. I think the wording is the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen Law School, because we are not to interpret the, the use of the law school's name as an endorsement. The same way, by the way, to be fair and clear, as many of you know, I happen to be a law professor. That does not mean to suggest in any way that my views are the views of the law school or the university. Uh, they may be of individuals. They may not be. Who knows? Does it matter? With all that said, a lot of caveats to begin the show. Chris, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me on this morning. Well, I'm fired up, man. Hand me some coffee. I'm ready to go. What time were you up at, Chris? Weirdly enough, I was up at 4.30 in the morning. I think some rolling thunder here through Conway woke me up. That's funny. That is funny. Well, (laughs) yeah. uh, By the way, let's uh, say that we uh, wish 
Chris's son, Patrick, good luck. He's having a minor procedure, a tonsillectomy today. By the way, yeah, of yeah. course, you well know the thing. It's a minor procedure when the other guy's having it. When I got to go down to the hospital, <laughs> it ain't so minor. But in terms right. Of, That's right. right. <laughs> in terms of risk and that type of thing, of course, it's a minor procedure, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. He's going to be eating some ice cream for some time to soothe yeah. that sore throat, no doubt. Yep, he, he quizzed the fire out of the doctor, Doctor Coleclaser. He was has wonderful bedside manners. Took all the time in the world to answer all of Patrick's questions. So here we go. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, Patrick, I know uh, Chris's son, Patrick. Chris's son's full name actually is Christopher Patrick, as is Chris's name. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's he's a junior, right? Correct. Right. And he goes by his middle name, which is quite common when, when we have juniors in the family. Um, but uh, it's another uh, Chris P. Corbett, or as I like to say, Crispy Corbett. <laughs> little play on words there. That's uh, right. And, and, and uh, Patrick is, is a really wonderful young man. Uh, I've, I know him well. I, I was going to say I met him. I haven't met him. I know him. And he's, right. he's very mature for his age, and he's He's not one of these bully types, and he's he's just a kind individual, uh, and he's athletic and smart and really uh, the kind of uh, person you want to be around. And I mention that to say that it's not by accident. Uh, Chris, uh, excuse me, Patrick has wonderful parents, both Chris and Susie, um, and uh, it's one of the reasons, one of the many, many reasons uh, one of the wonderful pieces of evidence to support the basis for you, Chris, to run for the the Arkansas Senate in 2022. I know that I keep pressing you on this point, uh, but it's important to try to convince our good friend Chris, I say this to the audience, uh, to run for office uh, because he's still mulling it over as he should be. He's got plenty of time, but this is the type of person we want to run for office. One who's demonstrated his ability to be a good parent. It's one of many facets. It's not the only thing. It's not the sole criteria on which I would elect an official, but it's, but it's it's certainly a good thing to look at. And Chris is still, I don't know if reluctant is the word, but thinking it over, meaning he's contemplative. People who, at the age of seven going forward, know they want to run for office, I'm a little scared of those people. That's a little too <laughs> eager uh, for that type of position. So Chris is mulling it over. He realizes if he wants to do it correctly, it's a big-time investment, and Chris appropriately uh, has a family. Chris appropriately has a business. Uh, Chris appropriately uh, has an employer. I say all those things to mean that's what we want for our citizen legislature. Someone who focuses on the legislature and has these other aspects of life going on at the same time. Why? So that they're in touch with reality and in touch with the people. And so if you find someone like that, then that person needs to seriously consider whether to run for office because it's not an easy task to do. But if you're retired, if you are put your feet up on the, the desk while you're working, if you're detached <laughs> from the people and from reality, well, it's easy to run for office because you don't want to actually have anything to 
that's going on in your life. You don't want that type of person to be your representative. You want someone who's in the thick of things, in the thick of raising a family, in the thick of being involved with other people in commerce and business, whatever the case may be. Someone who has his pulse on the, uh, his finger on the pulse of the populace. In any event, that's my little speech encouraging all good people, all the people listening to this radio show uh, who uh, fit that bill to consider running for office. By the way, there's another person. Uh, we'll perhaps talk about this a little bit later. Later, when Hannah joins us, Hannah's mother is a school teacher up there in Jonesboro. Of course, our favorite state senator. I'm sorry to all the other favorites. <laughs> I think they're tied. But our favorite state <laughs> senator, uh, Dan Sullivan, is up there in Jonesboro as well. And uh, Hannah's mother is a school teacher. I think she should run for office. I think she should run for state rep up there. I don't know who their state rep is. I hope I'm not insulting a good conservative state rep up there. But I think Hannah's mother uh, should run for office up there as well. This is what we need to do, Chris. We need to make sure that the legislature and the governorship, by the way, and all of the elected positions are filled with people from the community, not a bunch of bureau hacks who are looking just to get a fancy title. Well, I'm a state senator, you see. I agree. We don't need to, yeah. um, we don't need to elect Boss Hogg, right? We need to elect someone no. who's in touch with the people. So... Those are my thoughts on the topic. Let's take a quick – well, we still have a couple of more minutes. Heidi, maybe in about two minutes we'll go to our first break uh, so I can actually inhale because so far what I've done in the first ten minutes is exhale. Isn't that right? <laughs> That's right. We can break now if we want to. You want to take a break now? Okay, let's do that now, folks. We'll take a break, as you heard Heidi uh, giving us the good uh, cues on what to do. We'll take a break now, and we'll be back after these messages. I am Robert Steinbach. We are on the line, of course, with Chris Corbett. Chris, I'm actually going to let you get in the word edgewise, I think, during this okay. uh, session. Right? There it is. I'm yeah. sorry, you used it up now. Chris, <laughs> I was watching uh, Tucker Carlson the other night. Yeah. Tucker's on with his this guy. I think his name is Goldstein. So he's a bright guy, uh, 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 died in the wool uh, leftist Democrat, and that's why Tucker has him on as a foil. And uh, Goldstein, I think, knows that as well when they debate issues. And Tucker uh, and Goldstein treat each other generally, I think, uh, with respect and nice, nicely. And so Tucker starts to talk about how weak a candidate. As pr for when she was running for president, uh, Kamala Harris was. And he said, Kamala, no. instead of, no, no, I think I did it wrong. Oh, my goodness. Someone write your letters to Dave, even though he's at home re recuperating. Uh, I think the right pronunciation is Kamala. And uh, he said, Kamala. That's it. <clears throat> that's oh, how really? Literally. Yeah. And so Goldstein corrects him. Um, but instead of just correct him, say, you know, by the way, it's, uh, it's Kamala. Okay, so what, right? I mean, fine, it's good. Right. Uh, but, you know, right. these segments on television are all of two to four minutes. It's not like this is a long, uh, it's not like it's this show, a three-hour show. Yeah. And instead of just saying, oh, by the way, it's, it's Kamala. No, I got it wrong again. It's Kamala. 
No, Kamala. Sorry, I'm really, I'm not playing games. Here. It's Kamala. It's like, the, it's like, the, so instead of just saying, oh, it's Kamala, he goes, you know, you need to show her the proper respect and blah, 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 blah. Right, because this is the same thing, uh, uh, the same tactic <clears throat> that the left has done for years. They attack you as being disrespectful. And then, of course, what's right. the next thing to come? Racist. That's the very next thing. Yeah. Racist. Yeah. So, Tucker Carlson says, oh, yeah, sorry, okay, whatever, no big deal. Um, and he keeps going on and on. And Tucker says, uh, "What's the? who cares? Who cares? What's the big deal? Like, I got it wrong. I mispronounced your name unintentionally. Who cares? And the New York Times, the following day, puts out an article in which, in which, you know, they're talking about all of the insults that uh, Kamala Harris has to take. Amongst them, Tucker Carlson had the temerity to mispronounce her name and then say, who cares when he was corrected? This is yet another oh, example. Man. Yeah, uh -huh. another example of the New York Times making it up. This well, notion of I fake news is real. New York Times... Making it up because that's not what happened. What he, what Tucker yeah. Carlson said was, "Who cares about the pearl clutching?" You know that phrase, pearl clutching, when it's when the, it sort of refers to a very proper, often Southern woman, the equivalent of equivalent of Southern gentleman. But the woman, I don't know if there's a, a, a gentle woman. I guess when she hears something offensive, she puts her hand to her chest and she's wearing a string of pearls, so she's pearl clutching, right? And so it's a kind of, but it's it's considered sort of an example of being over the top, uh, being offended by just about anything because the the stereotype that's being used there is that the proper Southern woman is overly sensitive to uh, slights and this type of thing. So there's pearl clutching going on. Yeah. yeah. So that's she better, really what happened. She better not be too sensitive. She better not be too sensitive now, huh? Running for vice Some people can be sensitive, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, my my um, how I when I see Kamala, I think she needs to stick with Kamala because it's, that's who he just passed away. The Kamala, the Ugandan giant. His name was James Harris. He was an awesome uh, pro wrestler back in wrestler. the eighties. I remember him. But it, I literally but remember him. But I guess you can't. But you, I didn't know that you're not supposed to say it like that. So her name is pronounced. It's Kamala, like the um, right? it's like the punctuation comma and then blah. Okay. Seriously, okay. comma blah. Okay. Uh, okay, which comma. is fine. Okay, I see. Yeah. Okay. By the way, Chris, I testified in the U.S. Senate uh, before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, and the chair yeah. of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who had met me before, by the way, because I served under him as a staffer, as a counsel, to be clear on the U.S. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee when I appeared there. Now, of course, hundreds of people do that. It's not like it's a small number. It, it, there's no reason for him to have remembered me specifically. But he met me. This is, I'm not insulting him. I'm just saying, oh, my goodness, you mean the chair of the committee didn't remember me years later? So what? <laughs> right, to borrow right. a term from uh, Tucker Carlson. And when he introduced me, as you know, Chris, my name is spelled in the original German. That's S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H. 
because in German, yeah. CH is how you make the buck sound, B-U-C-H. So it, because in German, it's, it's Steinbuch. So my name like remains, it. yeah, my name remains spelled the same way. So he read it and he said in this open hearing on television, etc., oh, Professor Steinbuch. Because in English, C-H is often pronounced ch. So he yeah. said, Professor Steinbuch. I was were you not insulted. Were you, you there were you insulted, go. weren't you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not only was I not insulted, I didn't even correct him. You nice. know why, Chris? You know why? Because I don't want to know why. Cares. Yeah. Who cares? Well, also, you had like, definitive points to make. It was a, it's a it was unintentional mistake, right? The left tries to divert. I'm more concerned own. about the substance than I was about the pro yeah. clutching. Exactamundo. That's the point. That's exactly the point. Yeah. Your, your ability to see exactly what's going on, I mean this sincerely, is exactly why you are a good lawyer. Because you're able to cut through the nonsense, as we say, cut through the chaff to get to the wheat. That's right, baby. And this is the tactic often of the left. Don't get me wrong. To be fair, I've seen... People on the right do it, too. They throw up a bunch sure, of noise, sure. right? Yeah. It's, it, um, you, were, uh, uh, you went for a year to the, uh, to the Air Force uh, Military Academy prep school. You know uh, uh, quite a bit about the Air Force and about how planes work. Well, how, how do those large planes work when they're uh, you know, bringing cargo and uh, there's ground-to-air missiles coming up? They throw out these distraction elements, these fiery metallic elements, so that a missile will hit the fiery metallic element instead of the airplane, right? You're aware of that? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know why they do that? It's called distraction. And that's <laughs> what uh, uh, this fellow was doing when Tucker Carlson said, let's talk about the substance of Kamala Harris. And he said, let's not talk about the substance. Let me bring up a bunch of nonsense. That's what's yeah, That's what's fantastic. Of course. It's a great ahead. example, Rob. It's chaff. Right. chaff. It's a countermeasure. It's a deflection. It's a countermeasure to divert radar. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. what the left does. It's what a fantastic analogy. Yeah. They throw out chaff. 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 Chaff, they use the chaff. same word, chaff. right? You know, when we talk about wheat and chaff, that's a reference to when yeah. wheat grows. It has that hard shell on the outside that we don't use. Right. So we yep. scrape right. away the hard shell. That's the chaff to get to the wheat. Uh-huh. Uh, that means that's it's right. the diversion. Right. It's the irrelevant. Yeah. And same thing here. I think, I think it's also, the diversion. Yeah, it's also the, the, the husk of, a, of corn, right? You've got to get past the chaff to get to the good stuff, man. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Great analogy. I always enjoy learning about um, farming. We, you know, we've got a number of people in the state legislature who are farmers, and that bears on the point that I was raising earlier, and that is these right. are down-to-earth, real people doing real jobs and right. being uh, representatives of their community. i, I got to tell you, that's the only way – I want to elect somebody. I do not want to elect somebody who's a trust fund baby, 
I do, want, do not want to elect someone who is retired at the age of 40 or 50. I want to elect someone who's in the community, working, um, and, and has worked hard. Now, there is an exception to that notion, I guess. If you retire at, at, at the proper age, let's say 65, and you're still vibrant and energetic and smart, then you put in your years and you're still com- connected to the community. That's someone I would elect. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, well, the, farmers, the, people, the farmers in Arkansas are so humble. You know, they're so humble. They work hard. Um, they keep their head right, down. Friends, they we're work just hard. about to go to a break, so oh. hold your thought right oh, no. there. Uh, we will be Thank right you, back Heidi. on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. The Dave Ellswick Show, I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave. We have on the line, as you already know, uh, Chris Corbett, attorney, engineer, Conway, Little Rock area. Also joining us right now, Hannah Webb Howard. Hannah Webb Howard is a law student at the Bowen School of Law. I met her and got to know her prior to her even uh, being a law student through the Dave Ellswick Show. And Hannah is the founding president, as I am the founding uh, faculty advisor to the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen School of Law. How are you, Hannah? I am fantastic. How are you, Rob? I'm doing well. You know, you can hear the bubbliness, and it's really it's disconcerting for a person who has, is as sour generally as I am. Uh, but I will try to muddle through all of your perky happiness. You know, what I hate is that we can't be in studio so that I can be extra annoying to you at 630 in the morning. This is one of the few benefits of the COVID quarantine. Uh, That is, I don't have to see happy people as a general matter and can be more the um, disgruntled, uh, angry. I'm saying that with some level of sarcasm, by the way, uh, before some people say, you see, not too much, though, right? Uh, Hannah. During these uh, challenging times, and they are indeed that, let me ask you this. As the president of the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen Law School, what have you done lately to support Second Amendment rights? And I know part of that answer. Well, in my personal life or in my capacity as president. In your personal, we're starting your personal life. Well, I think I'm like every other American in the country who has stocked up on ammo and guns, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, but this, this is no joke. This is no joke. And then, so, and part of it is just because it's a cool, what, what, no one's spending money on anything. So you can't go out to eat. You can't go out and do X, Y, Z. So why not stock up on some guns? But anyway, so I saw a statistic, which obviously doesn't apply to me. And this was several months ago now at this point that two point something million Americans had become gun owners for the first time during the coronavirus. And this was before any protesting, rioting, anything. This was just straight coronavirus, global pandemic, you know, the apocalypse. You know, that's that that's what the media had convinced us was happening was the apocalypse. Um so we did what everybody else did. Now in my capacity as Second Amendment society can't do anything. I mean, apart from communication through phones or whatever, Zoom, we can do that stuff. But, you know, that's, that's not the intent of Second Amendment Society. Our intent was, hey, let's get together. Guns aren't scary. Let's go to the gun range. Let's do some education. 
Um, let's teach you how to properly use a weapon. And let's train you. So we had training sessions coming up for active shooter situations. You know, if we're at school and active shooter happens. And so yeah. all of that is just. Second, Hannah. Uh, Hannah, let me just interrupt and say the active shooter session that we are intending to do is with our good friend Ed Monk from the last resort training facility and he is a firearms expert and perhaps in this context even more importantly an expert on active shooter situations and I've taken his lesson on active shooter situations and it's very insightful you walk away from that knowing more about what to do in that context much more than when you started it too many of these kind of education sessions and i've been to others uh, you walk away seemingly less knowledgeable than when you started the opposite is true with ed monk sorry go ahead hannah well, no, he needs all the free advertising he can get. He was fantastic. I've gone to several of his classes now. And, man, I would recommend him to everybody. Just because he goes beyond just the physical training of how to use your weapon. But he also goes through the mental training. Not only the mental training that you're going to need if a situation ever happens, but then he also teaches you, like, the mental control part of it. And then he teaches you how the bad guys think. You know, he teaches you that you've got to get out of your normal person brain and think the way that these basically predators think when they pick victims that are going to put you in a situation that you need to defend yourself. And so he just does a fantastic job at his normal sessions, teaching yeah. you just the basics. So anyway. That's right. All uh, of that Chris. is at a, it's at a screeching halt. We can't do anything with the Second Amendment Society that is fun and makes it what it is. Yeah, I think we're going to try, we'll see how successful we can do it, to try to do at least some Zoom-type sessions, albeit, as you aptly point out, that is not our primary goal or method. Uh, we want to be hands-on. Chris, you, of course, are a strong believer in the Second Amendment. You are the NRA Foundation's uh, registered agent in Arkansas. <clears throat> You own firearms, and tell us a little about what I think is an important aspect of being a smart uh, and dedicated Second Amendment believer and firearms owner. That is, tell us about what you have done to teach your children about the importance of firearm ownership and the importance, of course, of firearm safety. You know what, Dave, in that regard, I did the same thing my dad did, and that's introduced me to firearms early. At, at a young age, my first uh, weapon was uh, a 410 uh, shotgun. It's a single load. It cracked open. You loaded one shell, you closed it, and you had to pull. It was not double action. It was single action. You had to cock the shotgun in order to shoot it, and um, it was. I was introduced early, and uh, shown that um, you know, safeties of, the safety of uh, firearms is, is, is important and introduced at a young age. And don't ever point at anything that you don't want to shoot. And these some of these basic things have been stuck with me for you know, 40 years. And um, I pass those things on to my, my kids because you know, kids, they try to blame. Did I lose you? I, I kind of blame society. Try to blame 
try to blame uh, guns for the things. It's not guns. It's people. It's people that don't understand what's going on and uh, with weapons and um, people cause problems. And weapons are a, a unique element of of America, and it's a it's a right that we have, and it needs to be protected. And I I think that all the kids need to be introduced to to weapons at an early age. It, it doesn't. It's not like on the movies when when it, when a, when somebody gets shot or something gets shot. I've taken Patrick deer hunting uh, at an early age and sees what a bullet does to a deer. It's um you know it's not something you want to be taken lightly that someone's swinging around firearms. Like I see some of these people brandishing firearms at these protests. This is not to be taken lightly. Um, and um, gun safety is huge in my family, just as it was with my dad growing up. So I hope everybody so has a chance to do that. I want to dovetail off of him if I can. Please. Yeah. So that was a very similar experience that my dad taught me. So obviously I don't have children um, that I can pass it on to yet. But yeah, my dad did the yeah. same thing. From a, from a very early age, guns were no stranger to me in my house, but it, it was because he taught me how to use them. He taught me to respect them. And it was always so surprising to me when I moved to Little Rock and people thought I was 10 kinds of sideways because guns weren't a big deal in my life. And it wasn't until right. my later adult life that I realized, hey, people are actually terrified of weapons. And it's and it, it's just because I was taught how to use one properly, how to respect it, and how to not shoot myself or somebody else with it. And people didn't have right. that same experience. It's interesting. Another interesting thing that I've observed lately in my later adult life. So, of course, as conservatives, we get such a bad rap and in, in the legal field. And you all both know that. We're like the black sheep of the legal field, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm on this really interesting Facebook page, which is super left-leaning, but it's fun. It's, it's like a meme, funny page. So it's fine. Every once in a while, you'll get something serious in there. But, of course, it's constantly poking fun at conservatives. And so something came across one day about campus carry, and it was making fun of people who campus carry whatever. And the most interesting part of that thread, so, you know, I just read it, whatever. There were a lot of women on there who said, listen, I have been either harassed by somebody or I have this experience, you know, where somebody tried to, like, rape me. It was it was that kind of thread. And the women who said, listen, I'm scared because I am weak, people supported that. They were like, you know what, we get it. Cool. Like, I support that, which is it's very interesting why, you know, scared, vulnerable women are supported more so. I'm not saying they're completely supported, but more so supported in their right to carry than just, say, your average Joe walking down the street. Well, it's an excellent point, Hannah, because if you look historically, those who want to prevent citizens, the populace, from having guns are usually those that want to control them. It's usually those who are empowered or those who live in gated communities with security. So they say, well, I don't want you to have a gun. I don't have a gun. Yeah, but the guy walking around your house every two minutes has a gun, and there's a metal fence around your house. Well, that don't matter, you see. But I don't have a gun. You know, so when you see the Oprahs and the, um, uh, what's that woman, the, I forget her name now, the blonde woman with the short hair who's got the talk show host. Um, Ellen. When you see Ellen go, well, you know, guns are bad. Ellen's a multimillionaire who lives in a mansion in a gated community has security. You don't have a gun? What about the 20 people outside your house? 
They got guns. But this goes back to the point that I made earlier in the show today about Chris running for office while being someone who has a family, who has a job, uh, who hasn't retired at the age of 40 or 50. If you retire at 65, you've got life experiences. If you retire at 40 or 50, you grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth and you have no clue what's going on around you. Same thing about firearms. If you're the person who has personal bodyguards and live in a gated community, you have no clue about what reality is for the everyday person. You don't know about that woman who has to go to night school at the law school and walk over to the law school uh, from her, her parked car, maybe even outside of the parking lot because the parking lot is full, and she's scared. She's scared. And by the way, reasonably so. Why do I say that? Because at night, downtown, it can be dangerous. I've looked up the statistics, by the way, when some uh, former bureau hack said to me, well, that's the safest neighborhood in Little Rock. Safest neighborhood in Little Rock? Uh, It's the safest neighborhood in Little Rock if by the safest you mean really high in crime relative to others. (laughs) Meaning that's just make-believe. Just make believe. That's right, now, Rob. I don't have a problem walking to and from my car. I really don't. But to say that it's the safest is, is just nonsense. And so instead of lying, instead of misrepresenting, let's just be honest. Say at night, you need to be aware of your, of your surroundings in that neighborhood, even more so than you do if you're up in Hillcrest or the Heights or certain other neighborhoods that are measurably safer measurably safer. And so I don't blame the the woman or man who wants to protect themselves uh, while in that neighborhood. You know, it's it's about 13 minutes to the hour. Heidi, what do you think about us taking our next break now? Let's do it. Let's do it. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave. Dave is recuperating from a successful, relatively minor procedure. We say it's relatively minor because we didn't have it. Dave did. But if we had it, of course, it would be be rather major. Uh, In any event, of course, I I say that in jest. Uh, We wish Dave all the best. We've got about six or so minutes until we take our next break. We have on the line Chris Corbett, who is an attorney, uh, specializing in a variety of areas of law and a professional engineer. By the way, that's not just an engineer. Professional engineer is a title that requires a, an exam. It's a certification process. And there are relatively few professional engineers in the state of Arkansas and in the United States when compared to the overall number of engineers. And Chris has attained right. that very high level, that highest, in fact, it is the highest level that one can attain uh, as an engineer. And it's really a wonderful combination. Also on the air with us is Hannah Webb Howard. Hannah is the president of the Second Amendment Society at the Bowen Law School. She's obviously, perhaps obviously, also currently a student at the law school. And she is um, very much clued into the millennial way of thinking. Is that fair to say, Hannah? I wondered what insult was about to come out of your mouth when you said What do you mean insult? Do not mislead the viewers. I will get hate mail or something. No people. I am conservative. Oh, yes. I don't mean by that that Hannah is in any way a leftist. She is a conservative uh, through and through, really, uh, genuinely. 
Anna, incidentally, wrote a wonderful paper on gun rights in Arkansas. In law schools, we have um, these publications. Uh, Call it a magazine. It's a little bit thicker than that. It's a little more detailed than that. But we put out these publications, and students write articles for them, but they don't all get published. They buy for the position of getting it published. Uh, I was Hannah's advisor on that article. It was outstanding. It didn't get chosen. I don't know why. I don't know why it didn't get chosen. Uh, Hannah, could it be that it was a conservative topic? Could that be part of the reason? I'm I'm, I'm asking that genuinely. So, and I genuinely don't think so. So, and I say that because several other conservative topics did get picked. What Mm -hmm. happened with my paper the week, so, you know, a big deal in academic writing, which probably isn't apparent unless you don't do academic writing, is this thing called preemption, where, you know, if you argue a certain point and then the law changes so that your point has just been proven, well, then there's no point in you writing your article, and it's called preempted. So the week that I had to turn my paper in, a case came down that basically recognized everything that I'd argued in my paper. And so I don't think the people who were choosing the papers to be published understood that that made my paper better and it didn't preempt me. Because, you know, if I was ignorant of the topic and I read that, I would think, oh, she got preempted. Good paper, but can't publish you. And so I think that's more of the issue rather than a conservative versus liberal kind of issue. Although I will say this, and I, and I take your word for it, you're on the ground in touch with what's happening there. I will say this, if you had more conservatives who were reading your paper, there would be a greater chance they understood that what you were arguing was not preempted and therefore should have been published. And it reflects a broader point, which is this overwhelming leftist bias in academia, including uh, through the student body, although the student bodies tend to be more conservative than the faculty, because the faculty are virtually, conservatives are virtually non-existent on faculties, and there are conservatives like you in the student body. Let's be clear, I'm on a faculty, so it's not like there is none of us, or there are none of us, but we are far and few uh, in between, unfortunately. <clears throat> so I, I just... Uh, suggest that that may have been an issue in play. It does dovetail into an important issue that we're going to talk about uh, in the next segment. We'll tease it now. We only have about a minute and change left before we go to our break. Heidi, make sure to uh, break in because I'm confident already, even though I know it's coming, that I won't get the timing right. The, The Department of Justice has sent a letter, the United States Department of Justice, has sent a letter to Yale University saying your admissions process is biased. It is racist. It is against the law. Why? Because you are using race in admissions to a very significant degree. We've always known that that's illegal. And they're doing it in a way that disadvantages significantly Asians and whites. I hear the music playing. Heidi, does that mean we are uh, that I should end it up now? Yes, sir. Terrific. We'll see you in a few minutes, folks. Stay tuned, please.
This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbuck. Filling in for Dave, we have on the air with us Chris Corbett and Hannah Howard-Webb. Unfortunately, Hannah has to get going. She uh, stayed on through the break just to say goodbye. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully, you'll be able to come back on the air with me and or Dave in the near future. We really do, uh, all sarcasm aside from previous segments, appreciate your participation and your insights. Well, I always love being on. So it's good to be back with you guys. I'll talk to you later. Be well. Bye-bye. Now, we're on the air with Chris Corbett, uh, as you know, attorney in the uh, uh, Conway, Little Rock area, although Chris practices throughout the state. He's a professional engineer as well. Chris, we're going to talk about another uh, topic, a legal topic, uh, on which you are an expert. The United States Department of Justice has issued a letter to Yale saying that Yale is discriminating. Now, this has been ongoing. This is a reflection of what goes on across academia uh, all over the country, all types of schools, in the admissions process in which they overwhelmingly give advantages to certain minorities. And, of course, when you give advantages and there's only a limited number of seats, as there always are, then someone else has to pay for that by, uh, or another group has to pay for that effectively by having more limited admissions. And we're going to go through every paragraph of this letter, Chris, you and I, and we're going to talk with Dave's audience about what this means. But it is an effort to finally demonstrate uh, that what has been going on in academia is one, a lie meaning the claim of affirmative action is not affirmative action. Affirmative action is you put a little thumb on the scale because when two candidates are very close and one's a minority, it's, uh, maybe we can't exactly measure with perfection the differences in ability, and so let's give a little, little thumb on the scale uh, for the minority, and it also is reflective of historical events. But that's not what goes on in these admissions processes. These aren't affirmative action processes. These are race-based admissions processes. Those race-based admission processes have long been held by the United States Supreme Court as illegal. Yet that's what's actually going on. That's what the Department of Justice has finally come out and said. By the way, folks, this is why, this is why, amongst other reasons, we need to reelect Donald Trump. Because if we don't reelect Donald Trump, the Biden administration, the first thing they're going to do is rip this up. They're going to discard it. And we're going to go back to a system of discrimination, discrimination against qualified candidates uh, to universities, colleges, law schools, medical schools who are qualified. But unfortunately for them, under the old system, are either Asian or white or not one of the preferred minorities. Discrimination is discrimination. I don't care against whom it is accomplished. And by the way, Asians are minorities. They have been historically discriminated against. So all of the claims about privilege, your privilege, Chris, I know you were privileged when you were literally hauling garbage to put yourself through college, but nonetheless, privileged uh, is what they called you. Uh, But Asians historically have been discriminated against they are by no uh, by every definition i should say rather a minority meaning 
They are a small number. They are distinct. Uh, and they are observably, as a general matter, different. Those are the factors that we generally consider as a, a basis for minority status. Now, the observ- observably different is not a necessary component, but sometimes people on the left say, well, you know, uh, Jews are, uh, can pass as non-Jews, so they don't deserve the same level of minority status. Yeah, that didn't work very well for the Jews in the late 30s and early 40s, did it, in Europe. So just something to consider. Uh, Chris, are you still on the line? Because I haven't heard any noise from you at all. I think we've lost Chris, Heidi. Heidi, are you there? I'm here. Yep. Okay. I think we've lost Chris. See if you can get uh, Chris back on the line uh, as I um, uh, continue to uh, drone on um, on this very important issue. Um, the do you, uh, Heidi, do you have Chris's contact information, incidentally? Well, we'll we can discuss this over there. It's okay. I do not. Um, I can, uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll drop his, oh, he just dropped the call, so he should call back soon. Terrific, terrific. So let's start with this uh, very important letter from the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. The uh, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, and that's the highest individual in the Civil Rights Division. It's called an assistant because once you get above that, you get out of the individual divisions. So Chris is head, back. Terrific. Uh, sorry, we lost you there, Chris. The head hey, of no, the I can Civil still Rights hear you. I guess you couldn't hear me. You, you made some yeah, great points. Thank uh, you. You made some great well, points about affirmative action, which was upheld in the Michigan case, being a slight right. thumb on the weight, right? So the, a, light, a, a slight thumb on the pressure of the scales. By saying that, that race was used as one of 60 factors in the algorithm that let people into Michigan State University, right? I believe it was Michigan State. I think it was a university, but nonetheless. Oh, it was a university, yeah. So, so it, yeah. It, was, and it was upheld. That was upheld because it wasn't a, it was a, you know, it was a one factor. factor of 60. Yeah. Right. And now, you and I have discussed that it's racist. When you use race to make a decision, that is racist, right? And um, what's what outstanding about generally, this Chris, yeah. let me just make this one point and then I'll come back to you. What, yeah. What's clear about uh, what happens generally and may have been happening even at Michigan, uh, and they were simply able to pull the wool over the eyes of the Supreme Court, is it's not one of 60 factors, meaning they may list 60 factors, but if you look at the group of people with a bunch of uh, with 59 factors uh, uh, that are similar and the only difference is race often was the case that one race routinely got in and one race almost never got in so that meant oh. that 59 of the 60 factors were not important or maybe let's make it 55 right not quite all yeah. 59 yeah. Uh, but, uh, virtually all the factors were not important and race was an overwhelmingly important factor meaning a dispositive factor and that's what's taking place as a general matter across the country. Go ahead, Chris. Oh wow! So you nailed. So you had an extra dimension there. That all things being equal, that one factor was the determinative factor, the limiting. Oh, it's factor even more than that, Chris. Decided. I'm going to interrupt you again. Oh, it's not all. Yeah. Even when all things aren't equal, and you have better factors for say an Asian than you do an African American on every measure. 
And the only thing that the African-American has uh, that's higher is that he is more African-American than the Asian, right, by definition. That African-American, on average, that African-American has uh, uh, been given uh, a a far greater likelihood of getting admitted. That's the problem. When you line up 59 other factors, the Asian, uh, on average, outperforms uh, a particular, um, uh, 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 as a group, outperforms, uh, I should say, on average, uh, the the non-Asian. And the only thing that the the non-Asian has different is the non-Asian gets in. So what is the dispositive factor? It's outrageous. Yeah. Well, and what's fantastic about this, and why and you're bringing it up on the air here, is that um, this, this gentleman from the Civil Rights Division, he has left a partnership at Jones Day to take an appointment to be the, the civil rights leader at the Department right. of Justice. And he, he has a quote here. The letter doesn't quote him, but there's a, a news release by the Department of Justice. And he says, there is no such thing as a nice form of race discrimination. And that's Assistant Attorney General Eric Dryband for the Civil Rights Division. That's exactly right. I want to um, uh, get into the meat of this very important letter from the U.S. Department of Justice to Yale. Heidi, why don't we uh, take our break now, if that's okay with you, and then we can jump into the letter uh, right after the break and have a good segment before the hard break. So I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave on the line with us. It is incidentally 721 in the morning on the line with us is Chris Corbett, attorney in the Conway Little Rock area, as well as a professional engineer. Chris, we are talking about this letter from the United States Department of Justice to Yale telling Yale they need to stop discriminating in their admissions process through their race-based admissions. Let's start going through this letter, and then we'll, we'll, you know, I'll read a little bit, and we'll talk about it, etc. So uh, the letter says that the likelihood of admission for Asian American and white applicants who have similar academic credentials is significantly, let me emphasize that, significantly lower than for African-American and Hispanic applicants to Yale College. For the great majority of applicants, Asian-American and white applicants have only one-tenth to one-fourth of the likelihood likelihood of admission as African-American applicants, wait for it, wait for it, with comparable academic credentials. It's exactly the point we talked about before the break. That means all 59 factors are identical or demonstrably similar other than race. And if you are African-American or Hispanic, you have between uh, um, three times or four times and 10 times, 10 times the likelihood of admission than if you're Asian or white. Chris, how's that not discrimination? Because Yale says, oh, it's not discrimination. Tell me how that's not discrimination. It's outrageous, Rob. It's outrageous. And this is the DOJ, right? This is a right. a, a white conservative lawyer, a uh, member of the Federal Society, that's gone and left a partnership at Jones Day to go and attack something like this. And it's so duplicitous. It's so outrageous on its face in some of our top universities 
in the nation are racist. I mean, Yale is a racist institution. That's what they're saying. And I wish I could say, Chris, I wish I could say that Yale was alone, was unique, or even rare. This is a general process that goes on across this country. There's no question about that. That's not even in dispute. We're going to talk a little bit later about an article. Well, I'll, I'll reference a quote right now. In talking about this letter, the New York Times writes, the Ivy League schools are unapologetic about their use of race and ethnicity as a factor in admissions. The, uh, uh, on the contrary, says the New York Times, the system the Trump administration is attacking through this letter that we're talking about is one that Yale, Harvard, and others point to with pride. And that has become a national model. And that has become a national model. The national model is a model of discrimination, Chris. A model of discrimination. And, and I, and, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's fostering mediocrity is what it's doing. It's wanting the, We want the best and brightest coming out of our universities. I, I think that that's why America, United States of America, is the biggest, baddest country on the, on the earth right now. It's because we have a meritocracy. You are uh, rewarded for taking risks and doing well. This, what Yale's doing, does not reward that. The, the letter goes on. Let's talk about exactly that point. It, the letter goes on yeah. and says, uh, under the law, under the Civil Rights Act, we all have heard of the Civil Rights Act, Title Seven, Title Six, Title Nine. These are all parts of the Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Act right. uh, says the Department of Justice under that Yale, and I'm quoting now, cannot engage in discrimination barred by the Equal Protection Clause of the United States because Yale admits that it uses race in admission, Yale bear, bears the burden of showing that it satisfies what's known as strict scrutiny. I put the what's known as. Meaning you, can, you have to have a really important reason to do it, and it needs to be done with very great caution. The letter goes on this meaning that Yale bears the burden of de- demonstrating that its use of race is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling interest. Well, those are the two factors that I just described using different words. Here's the, here's the important part, Chris. Uh, just hold that thought. Uh, the letter says, Yale asserts that it has a compelling interest in obtaining the educational benefits of diversity. Yale's diversity goals cannot, uh, quote, Yale's diversity, excuse me, Yale's diversity, quote, goals cannot be illusory or amorphous. They must be sufficiently measurable to permit judicial scrutiny. Uh, it goes on, and quote, the, the quoting from the Supreme Court opinion, furthermore, strict scrutiny requires Yale to prove that, that the means chosen by the school to achieve its stated interest in diversity are narrowly tailored. Go ahead, Chris. Did you have a thought on that? Yeah. Well, it would just hit me. It's just, uh, you, you know, they, they uh, on the application, it, ha- it has you list your race, and they say right. that they use that for statistical purposes only. Uh, obviously, not another lie in your face lie that they're using that answer on that question to determine whether you get in or not. And it's our letter goes on to say that that point, you're, you are again right on the money. The letter says race cannot be a decisive, cannot be decisive in practice. In other words, mm-hmm. don't read it from the letter. Narrow tailoring requires that, that race cannot be the defining feature of the application or the predominant factor that decides an applicant's admission. Additionally, additionally, racial balancing is patently unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause and thus also violates 
the Civil Rights Act. In addition, an admissions program cannot unduly burden individuals who are not members of the favored racial and ethnic groups. Finally, a university's race-conscious admissions policy must be limited in time. And here's the clincher. Applying these principles and based on our review of information we obtained during our investigation, we have determined that Yale violated and is continuing to violate the Civil Rights Act. There it is, Chris. Yale's diversity goals are not sufficiently measurable, says the letter. Uh, They appear to be vague, illusory, and amorphous. Their use of race seems to be standardless, and Yale does virtually nothing to limit or define its use of race during the admissions process. Yale's race discrimination in undergraduate admissions is also not narrowly tailored. uh, Yale uses race in multiple ways. Um, Yale's admission data and other information show that the university is using race as more than just a plus factor, but rather as a predominant criteria that in practice are determinative in many admissions decisions. I'm going to read that again. Yale admissions data and other information show that the university is using race as more than just plus factors, but rather as predominant criteria in practice uh, that are determinative in many admissions dis- decisions. That's a point we've just been talking about, Chris. Of the, amazing. Of the factors, the one that makes the difference is race. If you're Asian, yeah. you can have a- as little as a 10% chance of being admitted when an African-American with exactly the same other measurable criteria other than race has a hundred percent likelihood of being admitted. And you, if you're Asian, you have a 10% chance of being admitted. Tell me race is not dispositive in that example. It's yeah, it it absolutely is. And this is not just based on one year or a couple, you know, just looking at one, they, they look, they went back 17 years. The DOJ has been investigating this for two years. That's right. And they've made this, made, there's substantial proof out there. And I think now it needs to move in. What are you going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? I'll give you one. I'll give you one example how to fix it. You punch them in the pocketbook. No new students for a year. How about that? You're going to be racist? Nope. You're not going to, how about punch them in the pocketbook for four years? That's right. And, and, and the federal government can do that. Bye. All right, friends, let's stop right there. We're just about to uh, get to Rush Limbaugh. Let's see what he has to say. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning. It is 735 in the morning. On the line with us is Chris Corbett, attorney, and professional engineer uh, living in Conway, practicing in Conway and throughout the state. Chris, we have been talking about this letter, uh, finally, from the United States Department of Justice going after a school, in this case Yale, for racial discrimination in admissions by disfavoring Asians and whites in order to favor African-Americans and Hispanics. It is race-based admissions. We've discussed why. We will discuss more uh, of that as we go through the show. But this is race-based admissions. This is not simply a small sum on the scale as affirmative action has claimed to be and was perhaps once was. But I want to change topics for a moment, and then we'll come back to this letter. 
I know, and I've been talking with you, about a filing that you're doing in the Arkansas State, obviously State, Supreme Court, in which you uh, are litigating against the university, University of Arkansas, to get attorney's fees for our successful litigating of a Freedom of Information Act request. We made a request. They gave, uh, they refused to give us any documents at first. Then they settled with us by giving us the, the bulk of the documents. That makes us successful, right? Because you don't have to get everything. You just need to get the bulk of it. And we got the bulk of those records. Uh, and then we said, well, now it's time for us to get attorney's fees. In order to get attorney's fees, uh, we went from the, the circuit court, that's the trial court, to the Arkansas Claims Commission. While in the circuit court, the university, through its attorney, David Coran, in the circuit court, to us, the, the David Coran, the university's attorney, said, oh, all of those issues are to be decided in the Claims Commission. He wrote that. He cited to a court of appeals decision from Arkansas saying exactly that. And then by the time he got to the Claims Commission, you know what he told the Claims Commission? I read this in your draft of your filing. He tells the Claims Commission, oh, all of those decisions need to be decided in the circuit court. He literally said in one environment, one forum, it needs to go to the other environment, the other forum. And when he got to the next environment, the other forum, he said, no, it needs to be in the first one. Is that a bait and switch? What is that, Chris? Rob, it's outrageous. And here's here's this in a, a two-minute nutshell, right? You, as a citizen of Arkansas, have the right to know what your government is doing. You send in a request to see the documents, and if you don't get them in a timely manner, then the code, the legislature has seen fit, to give you the right to hire an attorney and have the attorney compensated by the very body that violated the Freedom of Information Act. And so it's helpful for everybody to know the context of this. You have a right to know what your government's doing. If you don't get the documents, then you can hire an attorney, and a good attorney will review the case and say, oh, yep, they should have given those documents up. Now, uh, please take the case because you can get paid by the body, the government body that violated the Freedom of Information Act. Now, in this case, it's the state of Arkansas. And as you well know, Rob, they have sovereign immunity, meaning that the courts of the the judicial branch can't sue the king, right? Because we can't impede or impose upon the, the cash drawer of the state. That's the law. We can't hit the money part, the purse, the money, the money bag of the state in so, a court. In doing right in court, right? So, but you can through the claims commission. So the attorney for the state of Arkansas, or the attorney for the university, says, "Okay, we agree with you. Um, you can seek attorney's fees. You just can't do it here. Let's put it in the order. Go to claims commission and see if you prevailed." Let's see if you prevailed. If you prevailed, you can have attorney's fees. So we we march into the Claims Commission, and the same attorney argues the exact opposite. He says, nope, you can't get attorney's fees here because the circuit court should have said that you could have done that. That's a bait and switch. That's a Ponzi scheme. That's that's those little shells where you got to find the ball under the shell. And and, and the, the, the ball's not under this shell. The ball's under the other shell. That's a shell game. Yeah. 
it's a shell game, and the and the objective is it is to exclude the citizens of Arkansas from getting access to seeing what their government is doing. That's what's going on here. Uh, well, it's gonna. It's by gonna the way, I was going to say, Chris, I, I wish this were a solo incident uh, from the university. Uh, um, the attorney for the university, David Coran, has done two other things that are patently false. He claims that you can't get attorney's fees unless you win it after a full trial. But as is right. demonstrated in my book, in the Freedom of Information book on the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act, it's clear, it's clear that you can get attorney's fees after suing and then they settle because they realize they're going to lose. They're going to lose so they settle. And you can get attorney's fees. And he, he has absolutely misstated the law on that issue. Then after you told him what the correct law was, I figured when yeah. I saw you do that, I figured he would say, oh, okay, I, I didn't understand the history that these certain changes made at the federal level don't suggest what he was claiming it suggested. And you, and you demonstrated. Right. It wasn't even like you, you kind of shut. You demonstrated. He continues with his made-up argument. Absolutely made up argument. And then finally, he misquotes our complaint in which we said, look, we want these documents, but we want you to take out all the names and Social Security numbers. And they took, uh, they took out the names and Social Security numbers, but then they redacted other information, the race, the, the age, that kind of thing. And, of course, that was the information we were looking for, the correlation between, amongst other things, race and bar performance. So they redacted the race information. We described that whole process in the complaint. Then in the summary paragraph, which refers back to all of that detail, it says you were not allowed to redact, meaning you were not allowed to take out the parts that we wanted and didn't ask you to cross out. We asked you to cross out the name and the Social Security number. So that was never part of the request. So there is no redaction, to use the term, there. The only redaction that we uh, uh, objected to was your redaction of the race and related information. So in the summary paragraph where we, we had said, we don't want this stuff redacted, meaning we don't want the, and it was quite clear, by the way, we don't want the university to redact those portions that we requested. The portions that we didn't request weren't redacted. They were never part of the request. And, they, and the university Absolutely. consistently, falsely, falsely, claims that, well, we asked for the whole document, including the names and social security numbers. That's a lie. That is a lie. The claim about when you can get attorney's fees uh, in uh, a Freedom of Information Act, uh, that you can only get it after a lawsuit in which you win after a trial, that's a lie. And finally, the saying in one court oh, this matter has to go to the Claims Commission, and then going to the Claims Commission and saying, oh, this has to happen to, um, uh, this all has to happen in the, the first court, that's just not true. And the, 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 attorney, true. the attorney for the university in the claims court, when he said, oh, by the way, the claims court has some sort of opinion that said, uh, we don't decide these matters, the attorney for the university never said what they said to us during the trial court process, which is that the Court of Appeals has already ruled this has to take place in the Claims Commission. Why didn't the university for the attorney tell the Claims Commission that the 
Arkansas Court of Appeals has already ruled that this needs to be decided by the Claims Commission. Why would the university attorney withhold that information from the Claims Commission? Is that being truthful, Chris? No, it's not being truthful. And and the, the point is so well taken, and, and, and the general public needs to know, and the listeners need to know, that the judges in courtrooms, they look to the officers of the court. He looks to both lawyers in the court to tell the truth. And to tell them now, they can make persuasive arguments saying this case means that, or this may this case means this. But in the end, you have to present an argument that is not deceptive. And what's going on here is you argued he's the university council has argued one way in one forum, and then taking the exact opposite position in another forum. It can't be consistent. These are inconsistent statements, and it's a deception on the court is what it is, and in turn hurts Arkansas citizens. It does, and it, and it hurts the process, because as you say, Chris, and Heidi, with this, then we'll, I think we'll take our break. As Chris, you say, the court relies on the attorneys to honestly tell the facts and fairly argue the cases. So if, if you say, well, this fact pattern looks more like case A, and then you, Chris, say, no, I think it looks more like case B. That's an argument. You can have a differing of opinion. But you can't have a difference of opinion as to what the facts are. And the facts are clear. And similarly, whatever position you take on the law, you can't take a position on, on the first day one way. And on the very next day, I mean that metaphorically, exactly the yeah. opposite way, just because you're talking right. to two different judges. That's, yeah, so even exactly. if you can argue different opinions, you can argue one position, Chris, and the, and, the, and the university attorney can argue another opinion. But the university can't argue both sides of the same uh, coin. That's not That's right. legitimate. That's not proper. No. With that it, thought, it, it, um... Heidi... Chris, let me cut you off. Heidi, why don't we go to break yeah. now, and then we'll come back, and Chris, we'll let you finish that thought. Sure. Is Heidi there? Yes, are we ready to take a break? Okay. Yeah, let's take a break, Heidi. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning at 7.51. I will remind the listeners that we remain on the radio until 8 o'clock. Uh, and then we record uh, an additional hour to be replayed or to be played on the radio from 6 to 7. So be sure to tune in then if you would like to catch the remainder of the show. Now, normally that remaining hour is also available live on Facebook. I think that's not operating right now due to technical difficulties, as we like to say. So the only way you'll get to catch it today is by listening at 6 to 7, and that's a good reason to tune back in to 101.1 The Answer uh, and listen to the Dave Ellswick Show uh, as it plays from the 6 to 7 hour. Chris, during the break, you made a rather, what I thought, insightful connection between the two issues that we have been talking about most recently on the show. One was the duplicity taking place by the university council and saying one thing in one court, saying a different, the opposite thing in a different forum, as well as their false claims about what our complaint stated and their false claims as to how one can recover attorney's fees in terms of whether you can recover attorney's fees through the 
university or other state entity ultimately relenting in settlement or whether you have to go to trial. Obviously, it's the former. That's the case across the country under what here's a little insider speak under what's known as a catalyst theory. Uh, there's a little lightning by the or thunder in the background you might hear at my house. Um, but you made a very interesting connection between that and the topic that I'd like to go back to for a moment. That is how Yale is discriminating against Asians and whites in favor of African-Americans and Hispanics. What was that connection that you made, uh, Chris? Well, what's interesting about it, it's a lie. So on its face, Yale is saying, hey, we're taking in federal money and we're not discriminating. But in fact, they are. So in one position, they're saying, hey, we don't have any discriminatory. Yes, we'll take federal money, but we won't have any discriminatory practices going on here. But on the other hand, they absolutely do. They are, they, they, the DOJ has done this investigation. There's no way they can withstand um, a, uh, an investigation like this and to, to show that they're not being racially discriminatory on their face in their admission processes. It's just outrageous. And now they're getting their feet held to the fire. And, um, you know, you see it a lot. And it's a fight. It's a battle. Yale's a huge institution. And they've got lots and of you, money. Chris, and they can put up And how did you tell us how uh, you connect that to what the university council is doing in your case? Absolutely the same thing. They're saying they're taking one position, telling the court one position, and in fact doing just the opposite. And, that, and what's, what's interesting is um, we don't have to see this in our case, Rob. He's done it. He's he stated two diametrically opposed positions in two different forms of of judicial relief. And um, Yale, you could say Yale's even worse because they're hiding the ball from you. They're saying, hey, yeah, we'll take the federal money. We'll take it from you. And in return, we won't be discriminatory. But in fact, they are. The letter from the United States Department of Justice to Yale says data produced by Yale show that Asian-American applicants have a much lower chance of admission than do member, members of Yale's preferred racial groups. Here's the key. Wait for it. Even when those Asian-Americans have much higher academic qualifications and comparable ratings by Yale's admissions officers. So on every metric, they do better, objective metric, and then when they're rated internally, on every other metric except race, Yale's own admissions officers say, oh, yeah, they, they, they're just in line or better than the comparable person in the favored racial group. But they don't get in. They don't get in. Yeah. Rob, it's, it, it, the, the, the letter, the, the, the news, um, the, the press release by the DOJ is, is in a nutshell, uh, basically, sums it all up. Um, Now, the letter's four pages, but the little one-page press release basically says this. Asian-Americans and whites have only one-tenth the likelihood of admission as African-American applicants with the same academic credentials. That's racist. There's just no other way to look at it. And let let me read you a couple of quotes, Chris, from the New York Times um, Mark, um, what's his name? Mark Levin calls it the yep. New York slime. 
it's a little it's a little too uh, <laughs> offhand for me. But but his point is entertaining it's and with some validity. It's, yeah, it's too close to sublime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the New York sublime. Yeah. In the article about this letter from the DOJ to Yale, the New York Times says, "Quote." The Ivy League schools are unapologetic about their use of race and ethnicity as a factor in missions. On the contrary, the system the Trump administration is attacking is one that Yale, Harvard, and others point to with pride. And that, that has become a national model. In other words, they openly, these schools across the country, have openly ad- adopted and espoused these race-based admissions processes. And they're proud of it. What I read, uh, Harvard, Yale, and others point to, quote, with pride. Now, wait for this, Chris. In a separate article in the New York Times, talking about what is called microaggressions, I often confuse that with dermabrasion. That's when you take off the excess skin of your face. So in any event, um, (laughs) microaggressions are when people are given small negative things said about them, or to them, I should say, about them and to them. And so here's an article from New York Times about microaggressions, and it focused on three women uh, of color in medical school. And it said the derogatory encounters continued from there, down a little bit lower, when she, one of these minority female medical students, was first admitted to her residency at Harvard, a medical school classmate suggested that she had an edge in the selection process because of her race. Wait, why is that a microaggression? According to the other article, let me read you that point again, Chris. The other article says that the universities point to this system with pride. I hear the music, Chris, playing. We're going to pick this up for the 6 o'clock Thank hour. You. But why the conflict? It's disingenuous. Folks, that's it for the morning show. We'll be back at 6 o'clock. Listen to us then. Steinbuck filling in for Dave. On with us is Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, lives and works in Conway and also works in the Little Rock area. In fact, it works throughout the state, but I guess those are his primary focuses. Folks, I hope you heard us this morning on the radio. We are being played now at the six to seven hour here on 101.1 The Answer, uh, good conservative radio. Uh, But we were talking this morning, Chris and I, about two important and interrelated topics, and I'd like to slightly interrelate them even more. The first topic that we have been talking about is that the United States Department of Justice wrote a letter to Yale saying, we are going to sue you if you stop with your 
discrimination in your admissions process. You are discriminating against Asians and whites in favor of African-Americans and Hispanics. It is as drastic a difference as up to uh, when an Asian applies for admission, he would have a 10% chance of admission with a certain set of criteria or um, metrics, I should say, and an African-American would have a 100% chance, meaning it's a one in 10 chance for an Asian-American to get into Yale with the same or better metrics than an African-American. And that's because Yale, amongst many, many other schools, outrightly discriminates against Asians at the highest level and then whites at the next level. And it was that issue, Chris, that I saw a Freedom of Information Act request of the University of Arkansas admissions data about race. And I said I would like admissions data for the law school, as it turned out, uh, about race that shows these applicants' admission scores as well as their bar performance and their race. So I could do the same kind of analysis that the Department of Justice did, where they lined up uh, race with uh, admission scores uh, and bar performance to see what the differences were. By the way, I did that analysis in the past already, and what we saw was, one, that minorities were admitted, uh, the, the select minorities, the same as referenced well, certainly African-Americans uh, were admitted with far lower objective metrics, and by that I mean LSAT scores and undergraduate GPA, than whites. There were very few Asians uh, in the law school class. <clears throat> and the bar failure rate that resulted directly therefrom, by the way, meaning from the underlying factors that are represented in LSAT scores and other objective metrics, uh, those underlying factors produced an outcome where the bar failure rate for the African-American students was twice that of the bar failure rate for whites. We see it's a, it's a direct line. We see if you let in students with lower objective metrics, they don't do as well in law school and they don't do as well in terms of uh, pass fail on the bar exam. That was the data that I was seeking. Uh, they were, and we said, we don't want that data with names. We don't want that data uh, with social security numbers. But we want it with everything else. And we made that clear. That's right. So we, right? Right. So we said, take out that information, but don't take out anything else. And they took out everything else. Not everything else, but they took out race, um, gender, age, that kind of thing. And we said, well, you can't redact that. You can't redact the stuff we told you we want. And they did redact right. And we sued them. And in yeah. suing them, we said, yeah. we want it without the redactions that you put in there. And they said, oh, well, that means you wanted the names and social security numbers. No, it doesn't. And it was clear it didn't say that. So that was the first misrepresentation by the university. They are misrepresenting what the complaint says. The second misrepresentation is after we got the, most of the records, we went uh, from the trial court to the claims commission, because when, you're, when you sue the state and you want money, you gotta go thereafter to the, to the claims commission to get the money. So we went from the trial court to the claims commission, and you said, in the trial court, the university attorney, David Coran, said, oh, all the attorney's fees have to be decided by the claims commission. We agree, that's the law. 
and you went to the Claims Commission, and then David Coran in the Claims Commission said, no, no, uh, some of these issues regarding attorney's fees need to be decided in the trial court. Wait, let's go over that again. He said, in the trial court, he said, we've got to go to the Claims Commission. We've got the Claims Commission. What did he say? You've got to do it in trial court. Now talk about that a little, Chris. How is that not a bait and switch? It's completely a bait and switch, Rob. And and what's what makes it so invidious, what makes it so pernicious, is that you state one thing in one forum and get your way with the judge. And then you go to the, the next forum and state just the opposite. And then you, go, you get your way. Um, you know, officers of the court are supposed to be truthful to the judge. The judge has hundreds of cases on his docket. He looks to the officers of the court. He looks to the licensed attorneys to tell him the truth. And they can make arguments either way, but he, he wants the truth for them. He didn't want attorneys that are taking two different positions in two different forums. And, well, and, um, and we brought this up. We, we went back to the trial court, by the way. Tim Fox is the judge. And we told him he didn't care. He didn't pay any attention. He wrote, he wrote, he just uh, waved his hand at what we had to say. He wrote an order denying our motion without a, one lick of substance in it. So I've now uh, get, uh, sufficiently fed up with Tim Fox as a judge because he had made some bad decisions in our case. But I said, look, even good people make some bad decisions. But he routinely has made bad decisions. He makes bad decisions over and over again, and he doesn't explain his bad decisions. He just writes, oh, I, I side for, for the government. I don't need a knee-jerk uh, leftist judge consistently siding for the government. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to vote against Tim Fox when he's up for re-election, and I'm going to encourage everybody else to vote against Tim Fox because I've come to the conclusion that Tim Fox no longer is doing his job properly, much like when he ordered that I have to pay for the university's uh, representation. Well, let me miss, I misstated that. When I have to pay to represent those unnamed individuals whose anonymous records I sought to get, I had to pay for them to hire a separate counsel. Normally, they're represented by the university, but Tim Fox, in this regard, correctly said the university has so flubbed their behavior that he, Tim Fox, wasn't trusting the university. So he said, well, then these people should get separate counsel. Fine by me. I don't care. And then he said, I've got to pay for it. And the reason he said that is he said, well, I can't make the university pay for it. I, I don't have the legal authority to do that. Well, he ain't got the legal authority right. to make me pay for it either. He made it up. He so made it up that he said, well, we'll go to the Supreme Court and make sure I got it right. We went to the Supreme Court. Then the university said, oh, the Supreme Court can't hear that. So then it came back to Tim Fox and we said, well, hey, Judge Fox. Uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't hear the matter. He goes, okay, then, then you just have to do it. I, I thought we'd get to get this heard by Supreme Court. No, now you just have to do it. What's the basis in the law? There ain't none. He just made up the law. Tim Fox made up the law. This is what he's done on more than one occasion. He makes up the law. I saw them when, when he uh, said to the police chief, I'm going to take away your badge and gun if you don't do the right thing. He was right about the police chief doing the wrong thing, but he's not authorized to yeah. take away the police chief's badge and gun. Tim Fox is one of these leftist judges who makes up the law instead of interpreting the law. He butchers the Freedom of yeah. Information Act, uh, uh, and I'm going to make sure to vote against him and encourage everybody else to vote against him uh, when he's up for re-election. And David Coran well. goes to two different forums and makes two different arguments for the university, two opposite arguments. He says... Oh, yeah. you have to ask for your fees, Chris, in, uh, when, when he, he was in the trial court. He said, oh, you've got to do that in the circuit, excuse me, in the claims commission. We said, okay, 
fine by us. We go to the claims commission, and then he says to the claims commission, um, uh, you got to do that. You, you, would, you had to have done that, to be clear. You had to have done that in the trial court. That's, that's cartoon stuff. That's a, it. That, that's so make-believe. This is, this is nothing new. This is nothing right. new with radical left, liberal, indoctrinated attorneys ingrained in our government. The same attorney argued from the United States Supreme Court that an Arkansas man can't have a beard in prison because he can hide knives and guns in it. And I have knives and guns in the beard? I, I thought, I thought yeah. there was a limit on the size of that beard of a quarter of an inch. What kind of knife or gun are you hiding, hiding in a quarter-inch beard? <laughs> Justice Alito, Justice Alito uh, uh, lit him up. In, in the United States Supreme Court said, really, are you really going to stand there and be proud of this argument that you're making? Just as Yale stands there and is proud of their race-based admission, uh, it, it's outrageous. They literally, in your face, are, are violating the law and making outrageous arguments and all the while being proud of it and breaking the yeah. law. It, That's a, exactly a, right. Uh, Christian, I want to take a break now. Before I take a break, uh, I just want to highlight that uh, we're going to go back to the Claims Commission. You're going to go back to the Claims Commission to get your attorney's fees. And we have some good members on that panel. I I know of Sylvester Smith because he was once a student of mine years ago, and he's a thoughtful guy. And I'm hopeful that he and his other panelists will realize the duplicity of the university council in saying one thing in one forum and then telling the Claims Commission the opposite said without ever telling the claims commission they said the opposite that he the university council said the opposite when he was in the trial court we're going to tell the claims commission and uh and including sylvester smith that the university council is being duplicitous and is telling the claims commission the opposite of what he told the court and we hope that people good people like sylvester smith and the other panelists whose names i just don't remember offhand will do the right thing and realize the duplicity of the university with that heidi are we ready to take a break this is the dave ellswick show and we are back with chris corbett we are here in the six to seven hour And we are going over some material that is of critical importance that we started this conversation, Chris and I, this morning on Dave's show. And maybe you caught a little bit of it. We are going to dig deeper in it. We are talking about two related phenomena. That is, one, the fact that I had sought admissions data from the university showing race-based admissions. And the data did show that. And the data also, they showed that the outcomes, the bar passage rate for those who were be, were being given large race-based admissions preferences suffered. The bar performance suffered. It's no surprise. Uh, and how I had to fight to get that data. Uh, uh, the first set of data I got, uh, even, that was a bit of a fight. The second set of data required a lawsuit. Only after we instituted the lawsuit did the university turn over the bulk of that data. Then Chris sought to get attorney's fees, as he's entitled to under the Freedom of Information Act, for having brought suit and gotten the data. And then the university made a bunch of false claims, absolute false claims. First false claim is you had to wait and win 
at trial not get the data after the university was pressured into turning it over by knowing they were going to lose the lawsuit. That's false. That's patently false. Read my book on the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act and look at every Freedom of Information Act across the country and the Federal Freedom of Information Act, uh, and they all... Uh, unless there's entire, there are a few with entirely different language, and I don't know how they operate. But those with the same language allow for attorney's fees when you win because the other side relents after filing a lawsuit. And right. the university sure. makes a false claim to the contrary. Then they entirely misrepresented. I, they lied about what was in the complaint that you drafted. Absolutely yeah. ignoring all the substantive content and referring to the, the summary clause, which is totally legitimate as well, the clause is, that said, we don't want anything redacted from what you have redacted, not from what we didn't ask for. And so they lie and say, oh, they wanted all the information, including the names and everything. That's a lie. That's just a lie. And then finally, the university attorney, David Coran, went to the court, said, oh, uh, Mr. Corbett's got to get the fees from the Claims Commission. We said, all right. And then you went to the Claims Commission, and, and David Coran said, oh, Mr. Mr. Corbett's got to get his fees from the court. That's a bait and switch. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. And, you know, you know what's, what's further interesting about in the comparison to Yale and your research, Rob, is your research is so, your research is so important because um, – People are being allowed into law school. Less qualified applicants are being allowed into law school. And then what your research shows is that they're not able to pass the bar exam and practice law. That is awful. So you, they take this huge leap of faith. And I've, I've, been, I've been admitted to law school. I've, I'm going to do good. You get in there. Maybe you graduate from law school, but then you can't pass the bar. What would be very interesting is if they took these less qualified applicants at Yale, are they able to graduate? Yale is no cheap university. It didn't, you know, peanuts, some spare change laying around on the floor to go to Yale. It's expensive. And it, what happens is what I'd like to see from the Yale research and the DOJ research is how many of the less qualified applicants make this financial investment and that aren't able to graduate from Yale. Oh my gosh. Do you think that's possibly going on? I bet it is because Chris, that's there such, with, go ahead. Such an important question because here's the thing. We have already talked about how the DOJ letter aptly points out that Asian Americans and whites are being subjected to discrimination as a group on average and therefore suffer a harm. But the, what we have not yet talked about is the harm being suffered by those racial minorities who allegedly are being given a benefit. In the law school context, if you admit people with large racial preferences, we know they have a dramatically lower chance of passing the bar exam. And are you telling them that? Are you telling them that? No, because you're not, right? and they're not able to pass the bar. This is passing the bar is no easy feat, uh, and and it's it's designed so 
We don't, so you don't have um, unqualified attorneys out there practicing law and not doing a good job for their clients. And we want qualified attorneys, only qualified attorneys, to pass the bar. Uh, what is the bar? The bar passes rates, what, about 70%? So 30% of graduates aren't making it. Yeah, I think it's a. I think overall it's maybe slightly higher, closer to the mid seventies. And here's the interesting. Oh, thing. nice. Uh, but here's the interesting thing for the group that I evaluated over a, a period of time, over many several years, the bar passage rate for whites was about eighty percent. In other words, the bar failure rate was twenty percent. The bar failure rate for African Americans was double that. Double that. The bar. Let me say oh, it again. Man. The bar failure rate for Africans was double that. And if you're going to let in minorities with significantly lower objective metrics, that obviously translates to relates to far higher bar failure rates than you should offer them a deal. And the deal should be, we'll let you in, but if you don't pass the bar first time around, we'll refund your money. Because otherwise, I like you're, not only, I like you're not only harming those candidates who you didn't let into law school or university in the Yale context, you're harming those candidates that you did let in because they spend a lot of money and then they don't pass the bar. Now that's, that's a problem, this is- don't you think? Yeah, and it, yeah. Even let me let me put my business hat on for just a minute. If I make a failed business venture, I get declared bankruptcy and start over. If you make a failed educational uh, venture, you don't get to get rid of it in bankruptcy. You borrow eighty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars to go to law school, and you can't pass the bar exam. You're not getting out of that debt in bankruptcy. That's right. You you have to carry that debt with you for the rest of your life. It is what they call non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. Non-dischargeable. That's right. And so the universities here are selling a false bill of goods. Hey, you have been allowed in. We think you can make it here. And in comparison to the law school, these these applicants that are less qualified aren't able to pass the bar. It'd be so interesting to see how many. By the way, that's across the country. There's nothing unique yeah. going on about that. That's across the country. Across the country, that's right. Now, do, but but on its face, do we want more diversity in 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 lawyers? Do we want more? Yeah, we want it. Yeah, it's a good statement. But we don't want it at the at the cost of selling somebody a false bill of goods or letting less qualified applicants into law school, med school, top universities across the country. We need the best and brightest in the country to be practicing what they want to be doing. The notion of merit is being attacked every day in society. There's no such thing as merit. Isn't that remarkable? So if there's no such thing as merit, you shouldn't study for your exams. You shouldn't work hard. You shouldn't try to get better because there's no such thing as merit. Why are you wasting your time? And that was what we talked about the other day on the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And that is, if there's no incentive to try hard, then nobody tries hard because it's a lot of work to try hard. And the it is lift, a lot of work. And I, you know, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I feel no, you for go the ahead. students that have been let in. I feel for the students that have been let in and then suffer trying to compete with the top students for, across the nation. Um, there's got to be something um, said about that because 
They're going to suffer in their study groups. They're going to be ran off and left in class. All right, friends, this is a, we've been having a great discussion. Let's pick it up in the next segment. we got to get to news. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer. We are back on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. And we have on the line Chris Corbett, attorney and professional engineer, lives and works in Conway, uh, and also works across the state and has an office in the Little Rock area as well. Chris, we're continuing our conversation about race-based admissions, how you are trying to get your attorney's fees for recovering data from the University of Arkansas on race-based admissions, how the University of Arkansas Council has made three material misrepresentations regarding your attempts to get attorney's fees. Uh, He's made those misrepresentations to the Claims Commission. We are hopeful that the Claims Commission, including Sylvester Smith, unfortunately it's it's only his name that I remember from the panel because he was once a student of mine. Uh, uh, We are hopeful that when we present the duplicity being uh, said to the Claims Commission that Uh, the Claims Commission will recognize that that is improper behavior. But it bespeaks the broader issue of what goes on across this nation and what is demonstrated through the words in the letter from the DOJ to Yale, which is race-based admissions is ubiquitous. It takes place across this country. And while on the one hand, universities say, oh, it's a good thing, it's a great thing, they never want to turn over the data. Because when they claim it's a good thing, it's a great thing, they also falsely claim that it is a small factor amongst many. And what the letter highlights, the underlying truth that the data themselves demonstrate that these days across the country at every level of the university process, race is a an overwhelming factor and often the decisive factor in admissions. And we see this where, as is said in the letter from the DOJ to Yale, an Asian American may have a one in 10 chance of being admitted while an African American with the same objective metrics has a hundred percent chance of being admitted Uh, or said another way. uh, The Asian American has a 10th of the chance of being admitted uh, that the African American has to being admitted. So the African American, just to clarify that point, it may not be that every African American that has those metric metrics gets admitted, uh, but for every African American with that uh, set of metrics that gets admitted, um, uh, for every 10 of them, only one Asian American gets admitted. That's the better way to say it. I think I was a little unclear, so I make that modification, that correction now. And so this is what we, you and I, have been fighting uh, in the courts of Arkansas. Uh, Unfortunately, Judge Fox completely bungled the Freedom of Information Act law. Judge Fox uh, has since then uh, been dismissive of the of the requests, of the motions that you have made. Judge Fox, I believe, has not been doing his job on the bench, and as a consequence, you and I and others will support Judge Fox's opponent whenever he's up for re-election. I think he still has several years on the bench for this term, don't get me wrong. But we will remember We will remember, and we're hopeful that the Claims Commission will do the right thing, uh, and we're hopeful that the DOJ will continue to pursue these uh, race-based admissions 
cases so as to do away with the racism in the admission process across this country at all levels of the university admissions process. And so, Chris. Right, and it's a, it's a fight, right. Rob. It is a fight worth fighting. We need more attorneys like yourself. We need more attorneys like Eric Dryband that's willing to leave a lucrative partnership at Jones Day and take probably a, an 80% pay cut to become the top lawyer in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ, the Department of Justice, and fight this thing. He had a great quote in the press release. He said, there's no such thing as a nice form of race discrimination. And what Yale is doing is it's discriminating against Asians and discriminating against whites. You know, it's, it's so, it's just a, it just fosters this uh, stereotypes, bitterness, and division. And he says that. He says, unlawfully dividing Americans into racial and ethnic blocks fosters stereotypes, bitterness, and division. And he goes on to quote Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass being a black gentleman um, back in the 1800s, 1890, he says, the business of government is to hold its broad shield over all and to see every American citizen is alike and equally protected in his civil and personal rights. Now, if you're letting folks in that are less qualified based on their race, you're not doing that. I can tell you that, Rob. And it takes hard work. It takes your kind of research. It takes, I'll just be honest. I mean, Rob, you have risked your job as a professor to push this out there and let people know that they're letting less qualified applicants in to the law school. And it, it really, they need to know that because they don't have a good chance at passing the bar exam, which is... I got a call recently based on my freedom of information expertise that the university's council has routinely rejected and mocked, even though every attorney in the state that practices in, in the area of Freedom of Information Act uses my book and the uh, Arkansas Supreme Court and Court of Appeals uh, in almost every case. I think there was like one or two exceptions in almost every case has cited to my book on the Freedom of Information Act. And when they didn't, it was only because it was such a simple case that they kind of made a very short opinion and didn't reference my book. I think they should still reference my book. But in any event, the uh, this is uh, what's what's remarkable is how the university, on the one hand, says, well, we have a uh, we consider race now they they don't. They, like Yale, don't want to disclose, I think, well, let me rephrase that. Yale, according to the DOJ, doesn't, hasn't disclosed truthfully the impact of their race-based admissions. What I tried to do was get the data so that I could discuss the impact of the race-based admissions, and right. the university dragged their feet on that. So my question is, why? Why, if Yale uh, or any other university across this country uh, believes in what they're doing, don't they, wa- don't they want to turn over that information? And so I, I fumbled it in the beginning uh, just now when I was saying it, meaning I, ju- I was just unclear. What I'm trying to say is I don't understand why universities across this country don't want to turn over their data regarding admissions if they believe that their admission system is fair. And they say, well, you're going to be able to identify students. First of all, that's false. That's, that's a lie. 
you're not able to identify students. Absolutely not. You know what student had a score on, on this exam or had this GPA? That's nonsense. So that, that's, right. that's a lie. That's nonsense. But the broader point is perhaps the more important point, which is, well, if you think your admission system is fair, then what's wrong with knowing what each person by name, I never asked for it by name because I just don't care, but what's wrong uh, conceptually with knowing what each person by name scored before they got into the school? If you're letting in people with, with fair uh, process of admissions, then why can't we discuss who you let in and how you let them in? And so if you say, well, this person got this score, you could say, yeah, and this person had this other attribute. What's that other attribute? In Yale, the other attribute is race. That's what's clear. In yeah. Yale, the other attribute yeah. is race. Yep. And you, uh, and I'll tell you why they want to hide it. You know, you know why they want to hide it. They want to hide it and they not disclose it because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Isn't that telling? Isn't that telling? Yeah. Because. Yeah. You know, you know, in, in the criminal law, that means you're more culpable. In criminal law, if you kill somebody and then try to hide it, you're more culpable than if you just kill them. Right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just because the fact that you tried to hide it and the cover-up, the cover-up is normally worse than the actual action. I, I think they're covering up. What, what they're doing is wrong. They need to be held accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is. Uh, what we see all the time, I read, I'm going to read it again. I, I think I read it in the morning hour that we were on. Uh, there was an article, there were two separate articles in New York Times. One of the articles says that, uh, proudly, by the way, this New York Times says the Ivy League schools are unapologetic about their use of race and ethnicity as a factor in admissions. Uh, it goes on to say that various schools, quote, point to with pride. Uh, this system of admissions. They point to it with pride, Chris. And then in another article about microaggressions, it refers to what the, what the article calls derogatory encounters. And it says that a boss, excuse me, a medical school resident uh, was said to by a classmate, quote, uh, uh, a medical school classmate suggested that she the minority had an edge in the selection process because of her race, end quote. The first article says that they look upon this admission system with pride. And the second article says that when a student points out that uh, another student or resident, it's a quasi student, quasi professional, when another resident had a quote edge in the selection process, that that is a quote derogatory encounter. I don't understand, Chris. I'm genuinely confused. How is it a derogatory encounter to point out what the universities apparently speak about with pride, that they do give a edge, a bump up to minority status? <laughs> we, talk about, we talk about this all the time. It's because you hurt her feelings or hurt his feelings. Her feelings became hurt. Therefore, you have to ignore, ignore the fact, but yet their feelings are hurt. And because their feelings are hurt, it's a microaggression, and it's wrong and racist. All right. And Heidi, we'll take a break now, and then we will come back and finish up this hour of the Dave Ellswick Show.
We're back on the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1, The Answer, Conservative Radio. We are in our last segment of this hour of the Dave Ellswick Show from 6 to 7. We are on the line, of course, with Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer out of Conway, works throughout the state. Chris, this is our last segment. We say goodbye to Dave's audience for today. And we have been talking about race-based admissions, how we, you and I, have worked to obtain data from various sources on race-based admissions, how you are trying to get attorney's fees for having recovered data uh, despite the initial efforts not to turn it over uh, by the university, and how the university has been disingenuous in their claims that you're not entitled to the attorney's fees that you well earned, very well earned, in fact. We're also talking about... Oh, it's my pleasure. We're also talking about how uh, Yale, and this is the overlap, the intersection, how Yale has been consistently amongst many schools, essentially the norm across the country, undergraduate and graduate alike, has given overwhelming bias towards certain racial uh, minorities. So it's not what some people aptly once described affirmative action as, which was merely a thumb on the scale, a feather on the scale, a little bit edge when there's a close call or identical candidates, that equal candidates overwhelmingly are chosen if they are part of a favored minority group, but they're not chosen if they're not part of the favored minority group. And that's not fair. And you were saying during the break how you think this has potential to create long-term problems. Talk about that for a moment, Chris. Yeah, the, the, the long-term problems of this have, have yet to be determined, have yet to be seen. If you're making these race-based admissions, um, are we letting in less qualified students that actually won't prosper in society, that can't pass the bar exam? Are these numerous applicants, less qualified applicants, being let in based on simply on race? What's the long-term detriment going to be. I can tell you right now, it's going to be that we'll have poor doctors out there. We'll have poor quality, poor quality in legal and lawyers out there. We may have poor quality Yale graduates out there. Um, It's not, the long-term effects are not going to be good. And um, this is black and white. This is not going to be gray. You're going to let less qualified students in if they can even graduate from Yale, and we, you, as your research has shown, they can't pass the bar exam, and they have a law degree, but they can't go get the license to practice law, it's not going to be good for society as a whole. And and these things, you know, they foster stereotypes, and bitterness, division. These are long-term effects that are yet to be seen from this type of um, behavior by the government, this type of behavior by premier institution that premier institutions that get federal funding. It's got to stop. It's got to stop now. This is is a multi-decade thing going on at Yale. The the DOJ's research over the last two years has been showing, has showed they've done this for the last 20 years. That's what's remarkable about this. And I think it was Chief Justice Roberts said the best way to, to end discrimination is to stop discriminating. And these forms of race-based admissions are, as the letter by the DOJ highlights, a form of discrimination. It's that simple. Well, and, and Rob, it makes people mad. It makes people mad. 
Like, right. if, if you're letting other people, less qualified people in, it's going to make a white person mad. It's going to make an Asian person mad. It's going to make a black person mad. It's going to make a Hispanic person mad. And they're going to be mad about not getting in because you did it based on race. Well, I, I had a conversation with a, a liberal friend of mine about these issues. And he, and his point, he basically said, well, you shouldn't be looking at that data. I said, I should not look at the data. <laughs> and he goes, well, the, the data can be misinterpreted. I said, well, I don't know what you mean by misinterpreted. You, you do a regression analysis. It, it, it seems pretty clear uh, what you can show. Uh, yeah, but then people can make arguments based on that uh, that are not good. Wait. Not, you mean by not good, you mean that you don't like? Yeah, yeah, that I don't like. So you want people not to have access to the truth because with the truth, they may be more persuasive against your policy positions than if you withheld the truth from them? That's your position? Whoa, that, uh, you nailed it, Rob. You nailed it right there. Right. It's really remarkable. This is the new leftist ideology. The new leftist ideology is you don't need to know the truth because we will tell you what the preferred policy outcome is. We will tell you what your preferred opinion is. And if the truth, the data, the facts are inconsistent with our preferred policy outcome, we're not going to give you that data so that you can make a, quote, false, end quote, argument. And by false, we mean something that we don't like. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I believe, yeah. I believe in some of the points that were written. This was controversial, by the way. I believe in the points that people are better off if they get married before they have children, if yeah. they generally respect authority, uh, and that they uh, um, embody good moral values. I believe that. In a, in, yeah. And in, in in one manner, he's he's correct. If you just look at if you if you look at the data and you say that ninety percent of uh, prisoners are men, well, you take that and go, oh, the prisons the prison institution in America is sexist. They put more men in jail than they do women. Well, yeah. So are we supposed to just bury our head in the sand? No. You have to go a little bit deeper and say that okay, the majority of crimes are committed by men. That's why the majority of prisoners are men it's that simple well, there's a, right there's a really interesting data point that has been abused by the left and right uh there's a what happened to be because i don't really care a black economist at harvard and he yeah. analyzed police in, interactions with whites versus african-americans and he said african-americans are not shot more frequently after adjusting for all fa- relevant factors than, than whites. It's just a false claim that the police use right. deadly physical force, or I should say deadly force, on blacks more than they do on whites. It's wrong. That claim is false, according to this economist from Harvard. Well, that's not that's the right. meme, the narrative you hear in the press. However, it's important oh. to highlight, he also found that non-deadly force is, more, is used more against blacks than it is used against whites. Non-deadly. Again, adjusting for all relevant factors. So right. that's something that needs to be taken into account. That needs to be something that needs to be addressed. But the irony is that the biggest fight that we see today 
sort of in the zeitgeist in popular culture is about the use of deadly force, not about the use of non-deadly force. And in fact, the use of deadly force is greater against whites than it is against blacks. No way. How yep. is that fact or, not out there? How is that fact not out there? You want to know why? Well, because it doesn't support the radical left political agenda. And the political agenda is if we don't like the facts, we ignore them or we hide them. We hide there the you facts. Go. And hide that's them. what yep. you and I have been fighting for for years, about disclosing the facts. And then you let individuals make their decisions as to what they want in terms of their opinions, as a policy preference, based on the facts. They can analyze them. We can analyze them. We can have competing analysis if possible. The data that I analyze is quite clear. In fact, a colleague of mine, I think this might be near our last point, a colleague of mine told me that the then dean who refused to turn over the data to me told him, my colleague, that after I published my article that showed the bar failure rate for blacks was twice that of whites for the group that I analyzed, that then dean said to the colleague, not to me, not to me, (laughs) Steinbuck may be onto something. Steinbuck may be onto something. How right. true is that? Steinbuck may be on to something after <laughs> all. <laughs> yeah. And now the music is here. With that, thank you, Dave. I, I'm glad to hear you're doing better. We are out for the day. <laughs> <laughs>